There he goes. One of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, and too rare to die. Welcome to episode 117 of the Digital Freemason Podcast for the week of July 12th, 2010. I'm your host, Scott, and I'll be taking you along on my excellent adventures to the world of short, Masonic educational papers. As always, this and all other papers are available at the website, www.thedigitalfreemason.com, and I encourage you to swing by and check it out. So I'm getting a little bit better at getting episodes out, at least I'm shortening the time here in 2010, getting episodes out, and actually looking at my calendar, it's amazing, things are actually starting to loosen up, so get to do a little bit more stuff in my lodges and uh, some more podcasts coming out. So what with the recent U.S. and Russian swapping of spies got me thinking a little bit about Russian Freemasonry and what has to be in there. I had a piece that was sitting around here that I was thinking about doing and talks all about Russian Freemasonry, but uh, particularly in the times between 1731 and 1979. And, uh, it came from a lodge research in England. And so I thought we'd get going on that right now. And I gotta say, there's a lot of names in this one that uh, I'm gonna be juggling through, so bear with me. And we'll have fun listening to and learning about Russian Freemasonry. At the outset, I want to emphasize that there is no Freemasonry in Russia today. It exists only in exile. And let there be no misunderstanding about that. What I propose doing, therefore, is to detail the time when there was Freemasonry there and afterwards to give a brief description of its continuance in exile. In Russia, as in other countries where Freemasonry exists or existed, there are romantic stories about the early days. These are the stories of how Peter the Great was initiated in a London lodge by Sir Christopher Wren, presumably in what is now the Lodge of Antiquity Number no. 2 of which Wren was supposed to have been the master. After his return to Russia, Peter the Great is said to have introduced Freemasonry into that country. And, so the story goes, there is a lodge in St. Petersburg's of which he was the junior warden. I've been in a lodge in which a senior warden was a bishop, but I have never known one in which a junior warden was a reigning monarch. It must have given the master quite a thrill, fancied to be able to tell Peter the Great what to do. There are stories that Peter III was worshipful master in a lodge in Oranenbaum, and that he presented it with the house to be used as a Masonic hall. There are antidotes of Catherine the Great being much chagrined on finding that there was but one chamberlain in attendance on her because the others had gone to a lodge meeting. Can you imagine that happening to Catherine the Great? Nevertheless, so the story goes, she remained well enough disposed towards the craft to have her son, Paul, initiated as soon as he became of age, and some reports say that she actually witnessed the ceremony. In spite of this, Paul outlawed Freemasonry when he ascended the throne, but this, we are assured, was only because he allowed himself to be influenced by some dastardly schemers. His successor, Alexander I, renewed the ban, but after ordering an inquiry into the nature of the craft, he cancelled it and, supposedly, was himself initiated. It would be nice to think that there was at least some facts to these stories, but there is no word of truth in any of them. The first authentic record we have of anything connected to Russia is the minutes from June 24, 1731 of the Premier Grand Lodge of England, where it is recorded 
Then the Grand Master and his general officers signed a deputation for our right worshipful brother John Philip Esquire to be Grand Master of free and accepted Masons within the empires of Russia and Germany and the dominions and territories thereupon belonging to, and his health was drank to, wishing prosperity to the graft in those parts. The appointment in those days of a provincial Grand Master did not necessarily indicate the existence of a provincial Grand Lodge or even the existence of a single lodge within the province. Indeed, we have no reason to think that Brother Phillips had any lodges in his province as gigantic as it was. Certainly there was a record of a lodge constituted in the free city of Hamburg in 1733, but there is no certainty that John Phillips was in any way concerned with it, or even that it was within his jurisdiction. No other lodge is recorded during his term of office, either in Germany or Russia, though this is not by means conclusive, as continental provincial Grand Masters at that time did not always report events to the Grand Lodge. Further, it is known that lodges were formed on occasions without any authority whatsoever. Lodges that did not report their existence or delayed applying for recognition, sometimes for many years. An obvious example of this was the English Lodge at Bordeaux that was formed in 1732, but decided not to apply for a warrant until 1766. The identity of this John Phillips is a mystery. In the list included in the minutes of the quarterly communications of the Grand Lodge in November 1725, a John Phillips is shown as a member of the Lodge meeting at the Sun Tavern near St. Paul's, and also of the Lodge meeting at the Three Turns of the Newgate Street. On the other hand, in the 1738 edition of the Constitutions, Dr. Anderson refers to him as Captain John Phillips, and the re records his appointment as being a provincial Grand Master for Russia only. In the list I have previously mentioned, there is a Captain Phillips, shown as being a member of the Lodge meeting in the Rummer's Tavern at the Charing Cross. He is also included as a member of the Lodge in the early list of 1723, the year in which Grand Lodge records commence. Whether these two were the same person or not, and what was the reason for his appointment, and what was the connection, if any, he had with Russia, are all matters of conjecture. Certainly there is no record of or presence in that country, nor any activity on behalf of Freemasonry there. When we come to 1740, however, we are somewhat firmer ground. At the Court of Communications in March 1740, John, the third Earl of Kintore, was proposed for election as Grand Master, and among those present at that meeting was his cousin, James Keith, who was a Lieutenant General in the services of the Empress of Russia. Although there is no reference to it in the minutes, the Grand Master appointed him Provincial Grand Master of Russia, though what had happened to his predecessor, Captain Phillips, is not known. James Keith came of a noble Scottish family and, from an early age, exhibited outstanding military talents. He fought for the Pretender in the 1715 Stuart Uprising and after its collapse he fled to Spain where he entered the service of Philip V. In 1728 he moved to Russia where he had an outstanding military career. Numerous victories on both land and sea were due to his leadership and, in 1740, the year in which he became Provincial Grand Master, the Empress Anna appointed him as her ruler in the Ukraine. As so often happens in such cases, his outstanding success in the various fields aroused the enmity of some of the Russian generals and also of some influ influential courtiers. Their schemings caused him to leave Russia in 1747 and transferred his allegiance to Frederick the Great. His military career in Prussia was probably more outstanding than in Spain or Russia, not only in the field, but also as an advisor to the king. 
He was appointed General Field Marshal, and finally, in October 1758, at the age of 62, he was killed in the Battle of Hochkirchens when the Prussians were defeated by the Austrians. It is said that Keith was master of a lodge in St. Petersburg from 1732 to 1741, several years prior to his appointments as provincial grand master, but again there is no proof on this. The first Russian lodge to be mentioned in English records, with certainty, was at St. Petersburg in the Lodge of the Perfect Union, but it was not warranted until nearly, nearly 40 years later, in June 1771. What seems to be certain is that the early lodges in Russia were founded by foreigners mainly from the British Isles and a little bit from Germany, though obviously it would have been necessary for them to work in complete secrecy by reason of the uncertainty as to the attitude of the court and government. Thus, there are no records of these lodges, only reminiscence. Russian lodges that appear on the English registers were only eight. In addition, the Lodge of in Integrity, a military lodge in the 14th Regiment of Foot, worked in both Sebastopol and Baklava in 1856. But this, of course, was a traveling lodge, and met wherever the regiment was stationed, but being directly under the authority of the United Grand Lodge of England. That five lodges, three in St. Petersburg, one in Yesse, and one in Moscow, were all warranted in 1774, could mean that they had been in existence prior to that date, and were only then seeking official recognition. The Freemasons' calendar of 1777 and 1778 reported on the Russian Freemasonry as following. The first regular lodge, which was established in the vast empire of Russia, was Lodge Peace and Union 414, constituted in 1771 in St. Petersburg. The chairman and most of the members were English merchants residing there, who conducted this new institution with great regularity and activity. As many Russian nobles were Masons at the period of the establishment of this lodge, at their request, they received from the Grand Lodge of England in 1772 a warrant for His Excellency John Yelagluin to become the provincial Grand Master in the Russian Empire. This gentleman exercised his office with such success that many excellent lodges were erected in Petersburg and other places. John, or Ivan, Yelagluin, who was an intelligent and learned person, came of the ancient noble Russian family, and for many years enjoyed the friendship and confidence of Catherine the Great. Apart from being her advisor, he also tutored the heir to the throne. The Grand Lodge minutes from 1772 confirmed this appointment. The Grand Lodge secretary informed the Grand Lodge that the Grand Master had been pleased to appoint His Excellency John Yilleguin, Privy Council, Member of the Cabinet, Senator, etc., to Her Imperial Majesty the Empress of Russia, and Knight of the Polish Order of the White Eagle, and of St. Strasklus, to be the provincial Grand Master of the Empire of Russia. Thus, after a lapse of fourteen years, there was again a provincial Grand Master of Russia, and Yelguin certainly accomplished more than either of his predecessors. Only two years after his appointment there is, for the first time, a record of a provincial Grand Lodge and its officers. From then onwards, Freemasonry assumed a more serious and responsible role. Their ceremonies, also, while remaining basically those of the Grand Lodge of England, had dramatic incidences add added to them. For instance, the candidate was called upon to make three journeys around the Lodge, during which he underwent various tests and trials. Naked swords were turned towards him, and he was shown a corpse covered with bloody stained cloth to indicate what his fate would be if he betrayed the oath. 
he was called upon to seal his oath with his own blood, though he was spared this ordeal at the last moment. There is also a record in the Grand Lodge of England archives of five of the first six lodges, together with the details of their members, varying in numbers from 21 to 68. What is important, however, is that the lodge membership, drawn from the leading, most influential families, were almost entirely Russian. The one exception was the Lodge of Peace and Union at St. Petersburg, which consisted mainly of English Freemasons, and which, in spite of its name Peace and Union, apparently sought neither peace nor union with the Provincial Grand Lodge. On being advised officially by England of the appointment of Yelagwain as a Provincial Grand Master, the members passed the resolution congratulating him on the honour, saying that it could not have possibly be in better hands, but denying that he had any authority over their lodge. Rather, understandably, Yelagwain could not accept this, and wrote to say in no uncertain terms, but the members maintained their attitude until eventually, in October 1772, they were instructed by England to submit this to his authority. It is interesting to note that in addition to the three craft degrees, this lodge also practiced Scottish Master and Elect Master degrees. Yelgwen, however, introduced or at least authorized the introduction of other degrees, seven in all, to the three craft degrees, and they were followed by the fourth degree, the Dark Vault, fifth degree, the Scotch Master, sixth degree, the Philosopher's Degree, and seventh degree, Spiritual Knighthood. In addition, there was a chapter in St. Petersburg that practiced the strict observance rite, a system of Knight Templar masonry, which imposed on the three craft degrees a fourth degree of Scottish Master, fifth novice, sixth Templar, and a seventh degree professed knight. These degrees were based on the legend of the martyred Grand Master of the Templars, Jacques de Molay, and Provincial Grand Master of the Auvergne, Pierre de Mont, who, with his small band of knights, fled to Scotland in the guise of operative masons and re-established the Order of the Knights Templar there. De Montois elected Grand Master on St. John's Day in 1314 and in 1361 established the headquarters of the Order of the Old Aberdeen and from there it spread to all the principal continental countries. That, as I said, is the legend behind the order, but the facts are difficult to ascertain. It seems to have been introduced, or at least established in Germany, somewhere around 1755, by Karl Gotthelf, Baron von Hund, and soon spread to Russia and other European countries. For a time, it was quite a powerful order, but it began to die out, Without the, with the discrediting Van Hund and his untimely death in 1776. The position of Freemasonry in Russia became even more complicated in 1771, with the introduction from Germany of the Zeindendorf system, a Christian order of masonry, once again a mixture of the three crafts and various knightly degrees, and with the later introduction of the Martinist system. Velaguin fought against these foreign importations, but the opposition was too strong for him. It consisted of the opposition of influential Russian Freemasons who were not satisfied with the English system of the three crafts, ending with the loss of a secret. There were, they were seeking deeper mysteries and more secrets and mysterious knowledge about the transmutation of metals and the making of the philosophical gold and of the elixir of life. The outcome was the formation of the 1776 of the National Grand Lodge of Russia created for the purpose of working the right of seven degrees. Freemasonry had thus become firmly established in Russia, 
even though not the orthodox type, and it enjoyed the support of members of all important families. But the situation was confused by the practicing of various rites, and the introduction of even more, and not only had the original connection with England been virtually severed, but the seat of Russian Freemasonry had been transferred from St. Petersburg to Moscow. It spread to the remote parts of Russia, and but again it there changed in character. The rite of the strict observance had become the dominant ritual, but gradually it became permeated by the Rosicrucian ideas, essentially those of self-knowledge and the attainment of moral perfection. The position became even more complicated in 1779 on the establishment of the Swedish Provincial Grand Master of Russia, with Prince Gagarin at its head, to work the Swedish rite. This followed a visit to St. Peter's two years earlier by the King of Sweden as head of Swedish Freemasonry for the purpose of initiating, initiating Grand Duke Paul, and while in 1785 a famous Russian patriot and historian was initiated and his example was soon followed by many prominent intellectuals and aristocrats. Unfortunately for the craft, the Empress Catherine viewed this growing power with some concern. She had always been opposed to secret societies, which had been outlawed in 1782, though Freemasonry had been exempted at that time. However, she remained suspicious of anything that the late Emperor Peter III had favored. It was widely known that he had been favorably disposed disposed towards Freemasonry. Equally, her political rival and personal enemy, the Grand Duke Paul, was a prominent Freemason. Further, since the break with England, Russian Freemasonry had come under the influence of German Freemasonry, of which Frederick the Great, the arch-enemy of Catherine, was a dominant figure. To Catherine it must have seemed that everyone she disliked intensely was a Freemason. Russian Freemasons had active acts of charity and benevolence. They had established schools and hospitals, and they were quick to aid the stricken population in the terrible famine of 1878. Nevertheless, in 1794, Catherine made it known that she wished the Secret Society's decree to apply to Freemasonry as well. Yelagwin issued an order closing all lodges immediately, and General Proskurovsky, the governor of Moscow, undertook to be responsible for the complete suppression of all Masonic activities. However, although abolished officially, Freemasonry must have continued in existence secretly, as otherwise it could no longer have revived so quickly or so completely. When Paul I of Russia ascended the throne, hopes for Freemasonry rose again. Although no official action was taken and the craft began to revive, it continued to remain prohibited by the government. And short after the short reign of Paul I, and also under his successor, Alexander, Freemasonry gained considerable in strength and in 1870 the official band was removed. In that year a new Grand Lodge was formed. On the surface everything seemed fine, but from the beginning Russian Freemasonry contained elements of its own destruction as it was composed of two irreconcilable groups, those loyal to the three basic craft degrees as practiced in England, and those who thought that the knightly decrees were the most important, in fact the essential part of Freemasonry. Thus, in 1815, it split into two, a Su Swedish Provincial Grand Lodge of Russia to work the Swedish Rite, which regarded the so-called higher degrees as an acme and perfection of masonry, and an Asteria Group Lodge, which confined to its attention to three craft degrees, though it left its lodges free to work additional degrees if members so wished. Such degrees were to be under the control of Grand Chapter General.
Within a matter of only four or five years, however, it became quite evident that the new Grand Lodge was built on an unsustainable foundation. By this time, no less than five different rites had, were practicing, and Russian Freemasonry had lost its natural character by coming under the German domination. Thus, it was not in a strong enough position to withstand the storms that lay ahead. Its position declined further by the initiation of men who entered the order for political reasons, liberal thinkers who thought they saw the craft as an opportunity to fight class privileges and the dictatorial form of government. Some of the more extreme elements were even revolutionaries and terrorists who formed links between Russian Freemasonry and the secret political and pseudo-Masonic societies on the continent that were avowed enemies of organized government. In other words, Freemasonry in Russia had drifted very far from its English origins, and it had been infused with revolutionary politics. Nevertheless, in 1812 war against Napoleon, members of the craft were exemplary in their behavior and patriotic, patriotic in their actions. The Russian commander-in-chief, Prince Michael Kutasov, was a prominent Freemason, and was, as were many of the high-ranking officers. During the course of the war, several military lodges had, were formed as well. Alexander I had been well disposed towards Freemasonry initially, but he had become increasingly influenced by Prince Metamish, who was well aware of the dangerous elements within the craft in Russia, especially the fact that it harbored some highly suspicious members of secret political organizations. The final act of destruction, however, was started from within the craft itself. Igor Andronovich Kusilov was elected deputy grandmaster of the Astria Lord Grand Lodge in 1820. He was what one called a member of the old school, extremely conservative politics, deeply religious, and certainly a very sincere Freemason. He was a firm believer in Freemasonry he had known in his early days before it become, had become distorted by innovation that had destroyed what he believed to be its true doctrines, and he was alarmed by the fact that some lodges were becoming nests of revolutionary political activities. He decided that a determined effort must be made to restore the true Masonic doctrines as he, as he had understood them. But in this time he was opposed by members holding views very different from his. As a result, he felt that it was his duty to Freemasonry, as well as to his native Russia, to lay a report on the situation before the Emperor. He did so, giving an account of the history of Freemasonry in Russia, a report on the current position as he saw it, and stressing the dangers if steps were not taken to rectify it. His solution was that Freemasonry should be placed under a very strict government control, and that, if necessary, Masonic lodges should be closed down. For a space of nine months, the Emperor took no actions. But gradually, he became more and more alarmed by the activities of the revolutionary societies in different continental countries. Finally, in 1822, a Prussian Mason, Count Godwitz, presented to the Australian and Russian Emperors a report in which he advocated the closing of all Masonic lodges in both countries. Suddenly, and without warning, Alexander issued a decree on August 1, 1822, outlawing Freemasonry and closing all Russian lodges immediately. Freemasonry in Russia ceased to exist overnight. There are stories that it continued for a time in remote provinces and elsewhere in secret. Certainly Nicholas I found it necessary to confirm the decree in 1826, but even assuming these stories contain an element of truth, Masonic activities must have been on a very small scale. We can blame neither the Emperor nor his advisors for this. 
Russian Freemasonry perished because it had departed from the basic principles of the craft. It had introduced politics, and, once introduced, these have been uncontrollable. It had admitted members unworthy of becoming Masons, men who had entered it for the furtherance of their own desires, political and otherwise. And also, it had swerved from its, loyal, its loyalty to the basic craft degrees by seeking novelties in so-called higher degrees, which eventually became dominant. I have referred to the stories of, about Freemasonry continuing to exist in secret in Russia. There is no evidence of this, and present-day Russian emigre Freemasons cast serious doubts on such stories. For all practical purposes, therefore, Freemasonry as we know died in Russia in 1822. However, in the early days of the 20th century, it seemed there was a revival of Freemasonry of a certain kind in Russia, though perhaps understandably, precise details are unavailable. In any case, the term quasi-Masonry might be more appropriate, as it was very different from Freemasonry as it is generally understood. In 1908, a number of Russians who had been initiated in irregular French Grand Orient lodges opened two lodges in Russia, one in St. Petersburg and one in Moscow. The Irregular Grand Lodge of France also established two and subsequently other lodges in the Ninji Nadgorod and Kiev. But when the Russian government started to take notice of them in the following year, operations were suspended. In 1911, meetings were resumed on a more judicious basis, and at the time of the outbreak of the First World War, there were some 40 lodges owing obedience to the Irregular Grand Orient of France. Some became dormant during the war, but 28 were still in existence at the time of March 1917 revolution, when their members took an active part in these events. It is even claimed that there was a Grand Lodge of the Ukraine during this period, but there is no evidence of its existence, and the lodges themselves gradually collapsed. As I have already mentioned, these Masonic gatherings could not be called Masonic lodges in an orthodox sense. Owing allegiance to the irregular Grand Orient of France, they were essentially political in their aims as well as being anti-religious. There was, however, a separate Masonic revival about this time, which seemed to have been due partly to the White Russians and the return to their native lands after the War of Russians who had been initiated while in exile. In exile, many members had joined and sought initiation in foreign lodges or found lodges on their own under foreign jurisdictions where they are keeping Russian Freemasonry alive to this day. The fate of those remaining in Russia is a sadder story. In spite of official decrees against them, Masonic lodges and those of the others initiatic orders met without hindrance until 1922, when, at a meeting of the Fourth Communist International, a decree was issued declaring such orders were incompatible with the Communist ideology. Some lodges, Masonic in other words, closed as a result of this announcement, but a few remained in operation and continued without interference. Despite the decree of 1922, it was a period of relative liberalism, the era of the new politi political economy, and, after a while, even new lodges were being founded. Members of the Communist Party itself were prohibited from initiation, and any who had previously been Freemasons were deprived of office for a period of two years by the decree of the same Congress. Even so, prominent members who had been Freemasons continued in office, and the celebrated writer Maxim Gorky, who was widely known to have been a Freemason, continued in favor with the new regime. Who knows? Perhaps Freemasonry might have continued, even today, on this basis, officially outlawed, 
but unofficially allowed, had it not been for two events and, once again, one arose with the movement itself. A Russian mason named Astromov, who, had, who was concerned with a Rosicrucian form of masonry rather than the orthodox craft for masonry, and who had founded lodges in Leningrad, Moscow, Tiflis, and Kiev, very unwisely addressed a letter to Stalin in 1926, begging him to legalize the existence of Freemasonry. Stalin may have been influenced by the rumor rapidly gaining ground in Russia, but nevertheless quite untrue that Leon Trotsky was an enthusiastic Freemason. Be that as it may, Stalin's reply was typical of the man, being both immediate and drastic. Astromov and some thirty others, including all the officers of his four lodges, were arrested and imprisoned, where Astromov died shortly afterwards at the age of seventy-six. The fate of the others is unknown, but it is reasonable to think that it is by no way, no means any more pleasant. Three years later, in 1929, an agent of the Russian secret police discovered that meetings were still being held in secret. As a result, Pierre Mikhailovich Kaiser, professor of the Oriental Languages at the Moscow Institute, and two other Masons were executed by a firing squad. It is said that there are still secret meetings of Masons who hope that one day Freemasonry will be permitted again in Russia. I doubt it very much, and even if it should happen, it is likely to be a Rosicrucianarian or an, an other irregular form of Freemasonry, rather than the Freemasonry we practice. A French trade delegation, including representatives who were irregular Grand Orient Masons, visited Russia a few years ago. At an informal meeting, one of them asked Khrushchev if he would allow Masonry to be practiced once again, the political, atheistic form favored by the Grand Orient. The reply was not encouraging. There are Russian Freemasons in exile who are practicing regular Freemasonry in their native language and await the day when they will return to the land of their birth and practice it once more there. That. I fear, is even more of a pipe dream. So there you have Brother Batham's rather bleak view of the future of Freemasonry in Russia. Um, so this was obviously written a while back, and uh, talking about Khrushchev. Geez, that's been a few years back. I think even I have trouble remembering that one. Um, you know, since those times that the craft has been restored in, in uh, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Yugoslavia, and there's a process of being renewed underway in through a lot of the other Eastern Bloc countries as they remove themselves slowly from communism. And you know what? We wish them Godspeed and hope that they have uh, the light and the spirit that will help uh, make Freemasonry entrenched and help make them better citizens for a better world. So, once again, I've been your host, Scott. I've enjoyed our fairly lengthy time together today, and that's uh, me paying penance again, as I say. It's but I just want to bring out a couple things that uh, that I've been following here. One is uh, Brother Isaac's Rambling Mason website, where he is actually walking every street of Manhattan in raising money for the uh, Shriners Hospital. So, taking lots of pictures and following that around, and you can see what he's doing at uh, www.therambling.mason.org. And um, you can donate to theirs directly to the uh, Shriners website if you want to do that. The other one is still quite a ways away, but it's uh, mid-October is on the West Coast, Canada, in Vancouver. There is a festive board at the Cobalt. So we're going to be talking about um, evening event entertaining and socialization. 
and appreciating some of the legends of Freemasonry, Harry Houdini, Oscar Peterson, Mozart, and all those guys enjoying some musical performances and short readings. And that's being put on by uh, Brother Wesley out on the West Coast. So that'd be fun if you're able to make that. And you can always swing by and check out the website, www.thedigitalfreemason.com or email me at podcast at thedigitalfreemason.com. So until next time, be sure to keep the shiny side up.